This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Lebanon's Bekaa Valley. The Bekaa is located about 30 kilometers, that's 19 miles for you Americans, east of Beirut. And it's kind of like Lebanon's Napa Valley. The fertile soil of the Bekaa makes it the perfect place for vineyards. In fact, the allure of Lebanese wine has tempted and delighted people for thousands of years. In fact, the temple of the Roman god Bacchus. If you'll recall from your Roman mythology, he was the god of wine and also debauchery. His temple is right here in the Baca. But we are not here to party. We're here to visit children and moms and dads, families living in the tents they have made a home in a settlement for refugees of the Syrian war. I'm Megan Teets, and this episode is part two of a special series here on Sorta Awesome called A Refuge for Refugees. These are the Syrians. In 2015, Rich Stearns, the president of World Vision USA, wrote a piece for foxnews.com called Why Syria Needs an Earthquake. In the opening paragraph, he wrote, As the war in Syria now drags on into its fifth year, I am distraught by the apathy of the American public. No modern crisis has created so much human suffering, yet so little response by the American public. Had Syria been devastated by a sudden catastrophic earthquake, Americans might have responded more generously, but war has a way of turning our heads away from human suffering. Well, five months later, an earthquake arrived in the form of images of three-year-old Alan Kurdi, a Syrian boy who, along with his mother and brother, lost their lives when the inflatable boat they had boarded in Turkey headed to Greece capsized. That was the moment that the Syrian crisis 
finally landed on the radar for many of us in the West. But the situation causing millions of Syrians to flee their beloved homeland actually began back in 2011 in what the media has dubbed as the Arab Spring. The Arab Spring was a time of political uprising. And I say political, but of course it involved economic and human rights issues as well. So it was this time of uprising in countries like Tunisia, Egypt, Yemen, Libya, and Syria. The simplest way I can think of to explain what happened next without going wildly off the rails into political territory that I am actually fully unqualified to speak to is to say this. Rebel forces, forces who were at least on the surface pro-democracy, tried to topple the regime of President Bashar al-Assad. Assad, backed by Russia and Iran, retaliated. In the chaos that ensued, the jihadist group, Islamic State, or ISIS or ISIL, depending on who's speaking, I suppose, the Islamic State took over huge chunks of territory in Syria. The brutality inflicted upon the people of Syria, the bombings, the shootings, the chemical warfare, it's all completely heart-wrenching. This part will be the hardest to talk about. So just know that if you were sitting at my kitchen table right now so that I could tell you the stories of the Syrians we met while we were in Lebanon, I would reach across the table and squeeze your hand right now. And just know it's okay if you get tears in your eyes. I'll probably be wiping away my own tears as well. But I think even though it's really painful, We have to talk about Syria to give us the perspective we need on why people would flee, why someone would choose to become a refugee, why someone would take their children and just run. So here's the Syrian crisis by the numbers. Since war broke out in 2011, more than 470,000 Syrians have died. To put that in American terms, imagine wiping out the city of Atlanta, and some of its suburbs too. That's how many Syrians have lost their lives. Though there are 9.7 million Syrians still in their homes in Syria, 6.6 million Syrian people are internally displaced, which is to say they fled their own homes, but they still live within the borders of Syria. Now, in the city of Aleppo, somewhere between 200 and 300,000 people are trapped. Trapped with little access to food, water, or medical services. They're trapped where even underground bunkers are no longer safe for them or their families because high-powered bombs are able to crash through and destroy life. This next number is the hardest one for me, and I'm sure it will be hard for many of you as well. Among the numbers of those who have died in the Syrian conflict are 50,000 children. In one week in September, that's the month I visited Lebanon, in one week of fighting, 96 children were killed. Now, my daughter, AJ, is in the third grade. There are 19 kids in her classroom. 96 children is five classrooms of 19 kids in one week. Okay, I know that was hard to hear. I know it was. But 
Again, this is the backdrop we have to see to understand why people have been absolutely pouring out of this country. Those who can afford to leave, those who can physically leave, they are leaving in droves. Like I said in part one, many of them end up in Turkey. Many have traveled to Jordan. In fact, one of the largest Syrian refugee camps in the world is the Zatari camp in Jordan. Over 80,000 Syrians live there in the desert. But let's head back to Lebanon to the Bekaa Valley. These Syrian children, the smiling, rambunctious, charming kids we met in the middle of our stay in Lebanon, have gathered around me and they're singing. They speak only a few words of English and I speak only a few words of Arabic. But singing? Well, singing breaks down our language barriers. These children and their families do not live in a refugee camp. There actually are no Syrian refugee camps in Lebanon. In part one of this series, I introduce you to our host from World Vision Lebanon, Olivia Pinakayan. Olivia explained to us that there are no Syrian refugee camps in Lebanon, nothing like the Zatari camp in the Jordanian desert. And also remember in part one, I told you about the Palestinian refugees who fled to Lebanon during the Palestinian exodus. Well, the Palestinian refugees were put in camps within Lebanon. The people in those camps, they were highly organized and they were also armed. And they didn't hesitate to take up arms against the Lebanese during Lebanon's civil war. As you can imagine, this led to lots of hostility between people of the two nationalities living within Lebanon. The Palestinians are now mostly confined to their camps, and many Lebanese do not feel safe going into those areas. The Palestinians, likewise, they don't feel safe traveling outside of their camps. The relationship between the Lebanese and the Palestinians living in their country is fraught with resentment and tension. Now, I'll just let Olivia explain this next part. So some Lebanese would like to see... Uh, so the Lebanese are divided. Some of them, uh, when we go to the Bekaa, you will see like it's like spread out, you know. So some Lebanese feel like Syrians are everywhere. Let them come together in one place. Let them leave us alone, you know, like let, let it be organized in a camp. But some other Lebanese will say no, but if they come together, there is this potential of being armed, you know, like they would be kind of more organized. They could, uh, you know, like be problems with, uh, with the Lebanese. So it's a very divided Lebanese society and also politically, you know, like a divided uh, situation. And when was it like when it, this was a kind of a very hot topic a uh, couple of years ago to see if uh, hot topic in terms of how to shape the Lebanese uh, policy around this. So the thing to remember is that there are no official Syrian refugee camps in Lebanon. Refugees here live well, I mean, they live wherever they can find shelter. They live in Beirut and other cities throughout the country. They live in empty buildings, in uh, half-finished apartment blocks, even in garages. Or many of them live in informal, tented settlements, like the one we visited here in the Bekaa. In the shadow of the anti-Lebanon mountains, Syria, on the other side, just a 15-minute drive away. 
A tented settlement is a block of land, it's privately owned land, that a farmer or other landowner rents to these families. Unlike in Jordan or other places where the government provides land for Syrians to make their makeshift homes, here the Syrians must pay rent to the landowner. Now, what exactly are they paying for? Well, for around 400 US dollars a month, they get a space in the settlement on which to build a tented home for their family. A tented home here is pretty much just a wooden frame that's been covered with tarps, which then form the roof and the walls. The UNHCR, the UN High Commissioner for Refugees, they provide the building materials and then the Syrians construct the homes themselves. Now, most but not all have a concrete slab that serves as the floor, the floor in which the family sleeps and eats meals, they hang out together, they entertain their neighbors. Outside the tents, old tires that are suspended from cords or trash barrels kind of serve as weights to hold the tarps in place. From up high over the tented settlement, you can see that tires are also used along the roofs to keep the tarps secure across the plywood slabs that cover each tent. As our team walks through the settlement, we see clotheslines strung from pole to pole. There are electrical poles. There is some access to electricity, though the setup is uh, rustic. Each tent has a water tank outside, and around the border of each settlement, there are latrines for toileting needs. There's a channel, uh, a ditch, really, that surrounds each settlement as well. Baka is a valley, remember, and once the winter snow melts off of the nearby mountains, the settlements are very vulnerable to flooding. The ditches fill quickly and tragically, small children have drowned in them. So 400 US dollars for a two room tent and limited access to basic utilities. This is the cost the Syrians must pay to keep their families alive. Remember, these Syrians, they left behind regular homes with regular jobs back in Syria. Some were carpenters, some were business owners, they were teachers and doctors, artists and lawyers. They lived in high-rise apartment buildings in the cities or cute little duplex homes. And some lived in single-family houses, probably houses that looked just like yours or mine. They had homes filled with furniture and knickknacks, photographs and keepsakes, computers, and bikes for their kids to ride. And now, now they live here. Informal tented settlements, or ITS, are sometimes as few as four tents, sometimes as large as 150 tents. The one we are visiting has 46 tents housing 50 families, so it's sort of a medium-sized settlement. I'm going to share with you some of the voices of the people in the settlement. First, from a World Vision staffer, and then from some of the Syrians themselves. You may notice in our interviews, we don't really ask them to recall the horrors of the war in Syria. We really try to stay focused on their lives, where they are right now in Lebanon. We were reminded by our guides from World Vision Lebanon that retelling and reliving what they have experienced in Syria before they left is really traumatizing to them. And we certainly did not want to cause any harm in any way to these families who had so generously agreed to speak to us. When we first arrived at the settlement, someone from World Vision's wash department 
explain to us the infrastructure that World Vision and other aid groups have set up in the settlements. WASH, that's W-A-S-H, stands for Water, Sanitation, and Hygiene. World Vision has made it a priority to include members of the ITS communities as part of the WASH teams. We were introduced to the woman who is the community representative for this ITS. She was a surprisingly stylish woman with a quick smile and bright eyes. She couldn't have been more than 30. She was wearing a fun black and white pattern hijab, a white and black striped shirt with a denim vest over it, and blue jeans. So see, she, she is a part from our team. We have more than 30 Syrians community mobilizers. They are working with World Vision. They are living inside the ITSs mainly. So to provide us with the full picture inside the ITS, what their need, and to provide us exactly like uh, what the things that they are focusing with, especially its seasonal needs. Sometimes in the winter they need something, and the, in the summer the needs are changing. One of the primary tasks the WASH department is in charge of is making sure there's an appropriate number of latrines per person living in the settlement. For each 15 person, we build one latrine. Ah, okay. So this is the minimum standards. So our aim to provide each household with one latrine mainly, so they can have their privacy and everything, especially for the children and women. Is that how it is currently, or that's what you're working towards? Still, we are working step yes. by step, yeah. Okay. Uh, within this phase, even we are providing like uh, special latrines for the people with special needs. Mm -hmm. So it's focused like it will be uh, for each household. Okay. So to provide them with more help and like it should be equipped with us so they can get the access easily. Uh, like with uh, with the ramps, the handles, wow. and everything. Yeah. That's amazing. Yeah. World Vision's wash services also make sure that water networking is in place. So that means clean, potable water is refilled into each family's water tank twice a week with 1,000 liters of water. That's a little over 260 gallons. Gray water, water that's not drinkable, but it is suitable for toileting and showering, that's also provided through the wash program. Wash works with the Lebanese municipalities to manage waste management and removal, as well as draining water and sludge from the ditches that surround the settlements. Additionally, a primary objective for WASH is providing hygiene kits and hygiene education in each ITS community. Though it's not directly part of the WASH department's responsibilities, our World Vision staffer explained how winterization materials are provided in the ITSs. The Bacaw Valley gets very, very cold in the winters with snow and temperatures hovering near or below freezing. This is one way World Vision tries to help relieve the suffering of the Syrians during the winter. Like last year, World Vision were providing winterization, okay. uh, providing blankets, providing even we are providing drainage kits and everything. Yes. Uh, even the, the covers, we are providing them yes. sometimes when we have emergency situations. Okay. Sometimes we are providing clothes for the children, okay. boots, everything, like the whole package. Uh, especially, you know, like the fund is decreasing. UNHCR was providing the gas for like to get heat and everything, uh, yes. but it stopped like since last year. So they are collecting the wooden plates yes. and everything just like to, to have a stove in their winter. Right. And especially this will have other risk is the fire. 
Yes. Because if you have a fire here, it will spread within uh, like one hour. You yes. have it all over the place. Has, has that happened? Yeah, it happened like twice. Okay. So that's why we are like providing all the safety measures like to most of the ITSs mainly. the tented home of the family we are about to visit, we take off our shoes. Now, the family that was hosting us and some other Syrians that were standing around outside, they try to stop us to insist that we don't have to, but our World Vision host had prepared us for this, and we kind of gently insisted right back that we were more than happy to take off our shoes. We sat along the edges of the living room area of our host family's home, our lovely translator Manuela helping facilitate our conversation. As the story unfolds, we hear from this mother and father. He's 48, she's 41, and they start telling us how they've lived here in this tent in Lebanon, this two-room tent, with their nine children, ages four to 17, for four years. Their youngest, the four-year-old, she was a baby when they left Syria. Over the course of half an hour, they tell us how much they miss Syria, how they miss their relatives, how they don't hear from family often enough and they worry. The father tells us how the older children, they all have to work because what they receive in aid, it's not enough. They need maybe more money. The income that they receive is not enough because as a family they need five uh, bags of, uh, of bread. So they per take week. per week? No, per okay. day. Per day. We asked them to explain how they told the older children why they had to leave Syria, this country that they loved so much. This is what the father told us. Uh, I, t- I told them that we have to leave. If we don't leave, we might face death or we might be under attack. Mm. If our house was destroyed uh, due to bombing, we, maybe one day we can rebuild one. But if we lost one of our children, we cannot uh, have them back. When we asked if they wanted to stay in Lebanon or try to travel to a third country, maybe somewhere in Europe, the father does have family in Germany. His answer was the same as almost any refugee in Lebanon that you ask. Yeah, he said that he would love to go back when things settle in Syria. And when we wondered where they saw themselves in five years, 
that stubborn, resilient hope of returning home was again the recurring theme. Want to see yourself in five years in Lebanon and Syria? Whenever things will settle in Syria, whenever things will calm down, we will go back to Syria. We ask them how their faith is helping them in this experience as refugees, and the father says this. Uh, we believe that this uh, this is God's will, so we accept it, and we believe also that God will make things better one day. Through it all, the mother of this family, she doesn't say much. Her face was very solemn, and years of pain and worry were etched across every line in her face. She seemed particularly pained to talk about her older children working. As we were leaving the ITS, we saw groups of children getting out of the beds of pickup trucks, slowly walking back to the settlement areas. Children who had been hired to work in the fields or in construction for five-hour shifts that day. Children working to earn income for the family has really become the new normal for these refugee families. Oftentimes, the children are the only ones the Lebanese business owners or farmers want to hire. After all, who wants to hire a 48-year-old man when you could just as easily hire 9, 10, 11, 12-year-old kids to do the same work? The man we visited in the tent is right. The aid is helpful, but it's not enough. According to Amnesty International, Funding shortages mean that the most vulnerable Syrian refugees in Lebanon receive just $21.60 per person per month, and that works out to be about 70 cents a day for food assistance, which is well below the UN's poverty line of $1.90 per day. And so the children are sent out to work. World Vision has created a video that tells about the toll that daily work in the fields is having on these children. There's one girl who looks to be about 11 or 12. She's wearing a purple beanie and a lime green Adidas sweatshirt. She says, we are working to have something to eat. We get tired, my back hurts, she says. My back hurts all the time. She wrings her hands as she says, the boss follows us around all the time and yells at us. Then she pauses. And sometimes he hits us. I know this episode has been pretty bleak. I know our hearts, our hearts are breaking for these families. Where do we go to find anything good in this? Where do we find the light in the darkness? Coming up next time in the third and final part of this series, we'll find the light that is shining in Lebanon, the hope in the hard places for these Syrian families. One last thought from one of the Syrians we met. This Syrian father lives in a different tinted settlement, and at the end of our team's interview with him, he was asked, what gives you hope? And this was his response. 
شو الشيء اللي بيعطيكم اليوم الامل يوميا؟ الشيء اللي بيخليكم متاملين؟ هالولاد اور تشيلدرن شوف هالولاد تم متامل انه في When I look at my children, I, I know that there is hope hopefully for them and for us. Special thanks to World Vision USA and World Vision Lebanon for making this trip possible. Thank you to Tom Costanza of World Vision for providing footage from our trip. Also, thank you to Manuela Jarjour, one of our incredible and helpful interpreters. Please visit SortaAwesomeShow.com slash show notes for more videos and articles covering the Syrian refugee experience in Lebanon. Seeking the truth never gets old. Introducing June's Journey, the free-to-play mobile game that will immerse you in a thrilling murder mystery. Join June Parker as she uncovers hidden objects and clues to solve her sister's death in a beautifully illustrated world set in the roaring 20s. With new chapters added every week, the excitement never ends. Download June's Journey now on your Android or iOS device or play on PC through Facebook games.